Well, as we jump in this morning, if I were to meet you for the first time or meet you again for the first time, and I said to you, hi, I'm, I'm Sean, who are you? How would you answer that question? I want you to kind of let that sort of rattle through your mind for a second. And I suspect if you asked the same thing to me, hi, who are you? I would say, well, I'm, I'm Sean. And then there'd be an awkward pause because introverts. But if I then followed up with the question of, you know, you, you give me your first name, and now we're on a first name basis. Okay, that's great, Trevor. Who are you? How would you answer that question? I think that's, that's one of the, the questions that comes up in our lives a ton, whether we realize it or not. Some may not say to me, who are you? But the way that, they, that we interact asks that question more than we realize. And as I was preparing, all of a sudden I was like, man, I've been asked this two dozen times since September kind of thing. So let me give you a few examples of who I am. At my kids' schools, we got to go to open houses for the first time in three years. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. At Elizabeth Rummel, I'm Jana's dad. At OLS, I'm Jaden's dad. At OLS, I also happened to be the guy who parked in the wrong spot on the first day and blocked all the buses so they couldn't get in and bring the kids in and had his uh, license plate read over the announcements and said, thanks for showing up, come back next year, kind of thing. Okay, so I, <laughs> my poor son. On our street, we just had some new neighbors move in, and so I am the guy that lives in the gray house up there. The other day, picking up Jana from school, I happened to be wearing a, a, a disc craft, like a disc shirt, and, and someone said, hey, are you a disc golfer? I was like, well, I played in a thing and they gave me a free t-shirt, so am I a disc golfer? Maybe. A couple of weeks ago, I was up at the Nordic Center. A friend of mine from Calgary thought it'd be a great idea to enter this bike race together. He's like, it'll be fun. We'll ride together. He's like, it's 80 kilometers, but it'll be fine. We'll ride together. It'll be amazing. And so we line up at the start of the event. It's cold. I'm in my toque and like four layers. And they're trying to line us up and say, as we get to get ready to go, uh, line up kind of, if you're fast, line up at the front. If you're not, line up near the back. And so the question is, Sean, are you a gravel bike racer? And so me and my mountain bike backed up way <laughs> to the back because no, I am not a gravel bike racer. At the coffee shop, I'm an Americano with room. Here's the pro tip on that. When you get an Americano, if they don't fill it all the way with water, it's a little bit stronger. There you go, that's for free. At the dentist this week, I was Sean the 1617 cavity. I'm the husband of Naomi. I'm the son of Gordon Sharon. I'm the son-in-law of James and Linda. I'm the brother of Christopher, Bobby, and Jill. The brother-in-law of Elise, Pauline, Ryan, Matt, Janelle, Dora, and Pablo. I'm an uncle. I'm a pa the pastor at Trinity. All of these things I can use to answer the question, who are you, right? And I'm sure that as I'm listing this off, you're thinking, oh yeah, I can identify with that. I can identify with that. And on and on it goes. This is just such a huge question. Who are you? And every one of those identities is true. These are real things that are true of me. And every single one of those things shapes me. It's how I view myself and it's how others view me as well. But that list that I gave, that's not all of it, is it? I mean, we could go on with, with others of, you know, I went to this school, I did this thing, I have whatever else, right? We could go on and on and on. There is so much more to me, though, than just my interests, 
my career, my family, and even my favorite coffee. And what's more, sometimes I, I actually don't want to be defined by any of these things. Because when, I, when my identity is in some of these things, it, it, it can put either a, a weight of like shame of, man, I've got Michael the dentist, they're drilling into me again. It can put the weight of trying to live up to expectations, whether real or perceived expectations of, of parents and, and neighbors and, 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 and all the things. There can be a weight of saying, well, I'm, I'm related to these people, but I'm, I'm less successful than this one, and that sucks. I'm less creative than this person, and that's a weight. Like, how do, how do I boast in, or, or build that into me? There, there's a weight of even, I had someone say to me recently, we, at that, <laughs> that crux race, I was riding by myself because my friend, who, again, thought this was a good idea for us to do this together, lost me on the first hill, and I didn't see him until five and a half hours later when I finished. What a guy. So I'm riding alone, and it was, it was a beautiful day, and it was fine, and I, anyways. But I, another couple who weren't in the path, they were just out riding past me, and I, it was too late, but I recognized one of the dads because our daughters are in school together. So I recognized him, but once he's already by, but he came up to me at school, and I was like, hey, was, was, were you racing on that thing? I was, yes, racing, I was behind. He's like, hey, Sorry that I was cursing as I went past you. I don't usually talk like that. So we get this, right? Oh, you're a pastor. Sorry I said these bad words around. Like, just, anyways, just be yourself. But it's, it, like, it's a weight of my identity, right? But how we answer the question, who are you, is so important. And I would suggest it, it may be the most important question we ever answer. If it's not the most it's one of the top two or three. Now, for the past few weeks, we've been walking through the book of 1 Peter. So if you have a Bible in front of you or on a device in front of you, I'll invite you to open up to 1 Peter. We're in chapter 2 this morning. Now, Peter's writing to a group of Christians that are scattered throughout an area of the world that we now call Turkey. It was Asia Minor back then. We now call it Turkey. And for many of these new Christians and these churches that, as we read in the first couple of verses of 1 Peter, that he was writing to these five specific churches, these new believers, their, their new allegiance to Jesus as their leader and rescuer meant that they felt pretty isolated from the world around them. They, they hadn't moved. People didn't move then like we do today as often. But all of a sudden, the world around them felt just off and different. They found themselves kind of on the outskirts of society. They were ostracized by the Jews and, and who, the Jews that opposed them and by the Romans that misunderstood them. And their faith was being tested by all kinds of different trials. And they were starting to realize that, you know what, we, we actually don't belong in this world. It's like we're made for another world. Now, as, as followers of Jesus today, we are increasingly finding ourselves in the same or similar place. Some of the, the core values and beliefs of the church that, that even a generation ago or less than a generation ago might have been kind of common and assumed as, as true for everyone are now considered things like fringe or uh, outdated, restrictive, unloving, even bigoted and violent. And so Peter wrote this letter to encourage those first century Christians to stand firm in God's grace, and we need the same encouragement today. And in the passage we're going to look at today, Peter is going to answer for us the question, who are you? And then he's going to go even a little bit forward 
and answer the, so where do you belong? As followers of Jesus, here's kind of the big idea for the morning. As followers of Jesus, our identity is found with Jesus and our belonging is found with God. Okay, our identity is found with Jesus. Our belonging is found with God. Just for the sake of kind of recap a little bit, here's where we've come so far in this letter because it keeps on building on itself. And so, as you may remember last week, there were two therefores in last week's passage, which is, you always got to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? And it reminds us that Peter says something, and then he builds on it, and then he builds on it, and then he builds on it. And so he continues to build on this this morning. So here's what he's building on for us. He said that he's already told us that God's mercy to us means that we've been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And then because of Jesus' work and our putting our hope and our trust in him alone, we have a future inheritance, one that is safe, that's kept, that's secure, and one that will never rot, rust, or decay. But he's also said in this world we will still have struggles. Not going to be easy, but you might just, you know, maybe some things might be tough some days. No, we will have struggles and maybe even, even sufferings. We're going to feel like outsiders, like strangers and aliens is the, the language he's used even. But we want to keep our eyes on the glory that is to come and, and rest and be rooted in our primary identity as chosen exiles. So how do we do this so far? He's told us, Peter's told us, that there's definitely an obedience factor. We do what Jesus said we should do because of all that he's done for us. But now he's going to keep building on that. And this morning he's going to use two building metaphors to teach us about Jesus. And if there's one thing I think we all know, whether we realize it or not, one thing we all know about buildings is they all take multiple pieces in multiple places, right? We're not going to build a new building that's purely concrete. We're not going to build a building that's purely windows. We're not going to build one that's just OSB or plywood or shingles or all the things. It takes lots of parts, lots of pieces put together, and that's a bit of a hint and foreshadowing of where we're going. See, as followers of Jesus, we are not meant to live alone. In fact, we cannot live alone. And so Peter is going to give us a picture of a house that will last forever. Let me start reading. 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm picking it up at verse 4. As you come to him, talking about Jesus, as you come to him, a living stone, one that was rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves, as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so this first picture we get is that Jesus is the living stone, one that was rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God. And it's a great reminder for us that Jesus knows what it's like to be marginalized. He knows what it's like to be rejected by the world. Yet he also knows that in God's sight, he is chosen and precious. Living stone is is kind of a mixed metaphor for us too, isn't it? When we think of stones, when I think of stones, I don't think of something living. I think of something like big and immovable and solid. When I think of stones, I think of my, my grandparents' place out in, in Nelson, just outside of Nelson, and, and it was kind of built into the side of the mountain. And, and as you know, the, the 
winters and rains eroded the bank around his kind of parking area, there's, there were these big stones that all of a sudden became exposed. And every year we looked up at them and we're like, that one's coming down soon. Like, it's not going to take long. And these giant six, eight-foot rocks, and eventually they did come down and they had to deal with them, but immovable, solid, firm stones, heavy, stable. That, that, that's, what, that's what I usually think of when I think about something that's stone, right? But then when we think of Jesus as the living stone, maybe that should kind of help the bells in our, in our minds go off and remember, wait a minute, we were, we were called to a living hope not just long ago. Because of Jesus' resurrection, we have this living hope that Peter talked about back in chapter 1. These verses we read are also just filled with Old Testament temple imagery, religious imagery. Now, for the people of Israel, the temple was in Jerusalem. It was kind of the key to the whole covenant with God. It was this huge, impressive building that was built with massive stones. And it was built on a hill so that everyone from far and wide could see this just amazing structure. It was the place where God lived with his people, and that's what it represented as the covenant. It's where God dwelt with his people. And yet, because of God's holiness, only priests at certain times were able to offer sacrifices to, to, to secure people's relationship with God. There was a process that they had to go through. The temple also identified Israel as God's people, and it was it was kind of the core of their life together and their purpose in the world was we are God's people. So Peter's taking this Old Testament um, imagery that I'll carefully say was kind of narrow and that it was focused at God's people, at, at Israel. Now he's like blowing it open for everyone again. He's reminding these followers of Jesus and these churches, we've said were primarily Gentile, right? They were mostly not Jewish people that Peter's writing to here. So even though he's giving them the, the kind of the Jewish Old Testament imagery, he's writing to mostly people who, who were not God's people. And now he's saying, listen, you guys, you're in. You're, you, you have a collective identity now and a purpose that's centered on Jesus, not a temple, but on Jesus. And this means for us at least two things. There's probably more, but we're going to kind of hone in on two. First, that, that we too are like living stones built into a spiritual house. That's, I mean, that's right from verse 4. There is a communal and a corporate dimension here that it's deliberate, right? You can't build a house with one stone. We, we together are being built. There's a, a, we'll call it a flaw in our English language and in our, our, our individualistic culture that whenever we come to the text and read a you, I think it's talking about me. It's almost never talking about me. And it's almost always talking about us. Almost always. There's a communal dimension here. And so we too were, were once dead, but we were made alive by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we're being built together into a spiritual house where God dwells. And again, you, you can't build a house with one stone, right? You need many stones they need to be brought together and arranged and organized and set in a certain way so that you can actually fulfill the architect's grand design for what that building's supposed to look like. Again, in our individualistic culture, this means it's not about you and it's not about me. The world doesn't revolve around you, doesn't revolve around me. It's all about Jesus. He is the master architect. He is the grand designer of his house. 
Now, every one of us has value, of course. Don't hear me saying you're not worth anything unless you're part of something. Each of us have value, but our true value isn't realized until we're gathered and built into our truest identity, and that is the church. So we need each other. We can't live on our own. We can't get through the struggles and trials of this life on our own. And being the church is more than just kind of half-heartedly showing up on time when it's convenient on a Sunday, but instead being involved and committed to what God has called his people to do, yes, on Sunday, but also in every other day of the week. And then it goes beyond just thinking, okay, well, Trinity looks like this. I'm committed here. I give here. I serve here. I worship here, all the things. But it's remembering that, that we are not, Trinity Bible Church is not the church. We are part of the global church. And so God is, yes, doing things here, but he's doing things all over the world in his church as well. And I think the more we allow this communal aspect to kind of get into our heads and out of our heads and down into our hearts, it changes how we live with one another. It changes how we see one another. It changes how we see other congregations and churches and Christians around the world as well. The second thing from these verses we see is that, that Jesus is the living stone, but we are also a holy priesthood, and we offer spiritual sacrifices. Again, we, not me, not you, we, all of us. And this is a, this is a shift, right? In the Old Testament, again, remember, we're, we're using uh, temple language and imagery. In the Old Testament, there was one tribe that was allowed to intercede for the people that was allowed to be the priest, one out of 12. But now... All of us are a part of this holy priesthood. All of us are made holy by Jesus once for all, true and better sacrifice for us. And so what does that mean? It means how we live matters. We are a people that are chosen and set apart. And Peter's going to unpack more later in the letter what the spiritual sacrifices he's talking about look like. But here's a bit of a, a, bit of a foretaste before we get there. He's going to tell us that as God's holy and set apart and chosen people, we are to resist evil and do good. And we're to keep our conduct honorable. Goodness, sometimes that last part is tricky. Resisting evil is hard. Doing good sometimes is hard. But boy, it sure is easy to get sucked into an argument and sucked into an online discussion about all sorts of things. To, to It's hard sometimes to be the, the bigger person. He'll later say that, listen, we are, we are free people. We've been made free by Jesus, but don't use your freedom to try to cover up evil. And he's going to say as well that we, are going to, we will endure unjust suffering that comes our way, and we're not going to retaliate because that was Jesus' example for us as well. There's a, there's a ton there, and so we're going to walk through those things later on in weeks to come. But we remember that just as Jesus was rejected, he is still the chosen one, the precious one to God, and he is the living stone. And because of him, we too are all smaller spiritual stones being built into his spiritual house. We're all on the same team. Just because one of us is a window and one of us is a chair and one of us is a ceiling fan and whatever else, we're all a part of the same house. So church, we need one another. We cannot function on God's as God's people on our own, or even with just one or two others. We need one another. We have a shared identity. The answer to who are you is in the living stone, being built into a spiritual house. 
It's found in Jesus, the one who gives life to all the rest of us. He continues, Peter does, with another building metaphor. Look at verse 6. Peter says, For as it stands in Scripture, see, I've laid a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. That sounds pretty good to me, never put to shame. I like that. So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that builders rejected, this one has become a cornerstone, and a stone to stumble over, a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word, and they were destined for this. So our second metaphor is that Jesus is the cornerstone. Now, when the ancients were building, the, the cornerstone was the most important piece. It's not like today where we call McElhaney and they come down and they survey a piece of, piece of land and they say, okay, you can put stuff here, you can put stuff here, don't put stuff here because it'll sink all the things, right? They, the, the cornerstone was the most important piece of any construction project in the ancient world. This stone was placed at the base and the corner of any building. And it was the largest, heaviest, most carefully positioned stone in the entire project. Once it was set, and only once that cornerstone was set in place, then the rest of the foundation could be constructed and the building itself could be constructed. And if they missed with that cornerstone, the integrity of the whole building was sketchy at best and may even collapse. But with a good, solid cornerstone in place, we can still travel to the Middle East, to Europe, to, to these places that we're, we're reading about in our Bible and see buildings that are still standing. And Peter's saying, Jesus is the true and better cornerstone, the perfect cornerstone of God's house. He has established the foundation of the building. It's him that's been set to established the foundation and the design of the building. And without him, we have no foundation and no direction. It, it's Jesus that provides the stability and the rationale for God's building. Without Jesus, that building will fall. And so the idea of a cornerstone, it's it's more common in the Old Testament than it was here and for us as well. So Peter quotes from three different Old Testament texts in Isaiah, two in Isaiah and one in the Psalms, just to remind his readers of just how significant this cornerstone metaphor was. And the wonderful promise for us here is this, that no matter how isolated or marginalized or, or how much we feel like outsiders when we follow Jesus, we are established on a firm foundation we have Jesus as the chosen and precious cornerstone, and we will never be abandoned or forsaken by God. We can build our lives on that. There's a but in this text, isn't there? In both the second and third quotes that Peter uses, in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 8 and Psalm 118 is where he's quoting from, it's clear that not, not everyone will respond to Jesus. And those who reject Jesus will stumble and fall. And the, the life that we're trying to build on the firm foundation of him will, will crumble if we don't have him. And so this morning, if you're hearing or if you're listening later, and you have, have not yet believed in Jesus and are not yet growing in, in understanding and learning and, and building your life firm foundation, he can take all of our weight and, and all of our questions and all of our things. And so continue to press in and towards him. Return to him for life and for living hope and for future inheritance. The last section here tells us what happens when you do this, when you have put your hope in Jesus, when you put your trust in him as the cornerstone, as the firm foundation. And so let me read 
starting at verse 9. But you, those who are in Jesus, who have chosen, who have not rejected him, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What a stunning reminder of where we've come from as we put our hope in Jesus. Our identity is found in Jesus. The answer to who are you is I'm a living stone. I'm a part of Jesus' family. And our belonging is found with God. Look at the language here. Those who believe in Jesus are God's treasured possession. That's crazy, right? Like sometimes we throw some of these words out like, okay, well, God's treasured. The God of the universe treasures us. These words here in these couple of verses right, might remind the readers of how God spoke to Israel after he called them out of, out of Egypt and rescued them. It's very similar language here. But now again, what Peter is doing is taking that text that was for God's people, Israel, at that time, and he's expanding it to everyone. And again, the language is just drenched with intimacy and belonging, and we cannot miss that this is a group identity being described. You cannot be a race, a priesthood, a nation, or a people if you're alone. It doesn't work that way. This is a group identity that's being bestowed. Together we are chosen. Together we are royal. Together we are holy. And again, not because of anything we've done, but purely because of what Jesus, as the cornerstone, has done for us. Jesus was chosen and precious to God, and so are we. He was a faithful king, a great high priest, and now we too are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. His obedience is the template, it's the blueprint, it's the design for all of God's people. And so us as, as followers of God, as followers of Jesus, we are God's treasured possession. We've been adopted into his family. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, not because of anything we've done, but only because of God's mercy. And that's what defines us. That's how we answer the question, who are you? But just like every one of those, those identifiers that I listed at the start of the service kind of def define me a little bit, they shape who I am and how I, how I react and, and respond to people around me, all those things, being defined as a, a, a chosen race, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, also shapes how we respond. And it gives us a purpose. Look what he says in, in verse 9. Because of these things, because we are living stones, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, we are called and commissioned and sent out to do what? To proclaim God's glory. This is not just we've been adopted into the family and then we sit and wait till he takes us home. We've been, been called out of darkness and into his wonderful light. That's, that's the message of the gospel, and now we get to proclaim that to the world, to tell everyone about it. We got to hear from Lorraine just a couple of weeks ago of how Jesus had called her out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And it was just a beautiful and amazing reminder that, that this isn't just something, some dead text from 2,000 years ago that hopefully something's true in it now, but it's still living and active and it pierces our souls and it draws out of us. This gospel is good news. And God's at work still 
And we often, I often need to pray to be reminded of that. God, show me where you're at work. Sometimes it's really hard to see. And I think that's okay that it's hard to see. But we ask and say, God, show me where you're at work. And he wants us to proclaim this gospel to the world. When we gather together, we, we remind one another of the gospel. We celebrate what God's been doing. But even more than that, once we go into our world, we proclaim the gospel all week long. I love how uh, one writer, Carrie Samden, kind of sums up this. She says this, We are his chosen people, a treasured possession, rescued from the kingdom of darkness and brought into his marvelous light. We are God's chosen means of proclaiming his glory in the world. Now, before I continue with what she has to say, I had to sort of stop in the first service and remind our people. I know sometimes, like, I was raised in, like, a conservative Baptist church, and, and you know, some of our brothers and sisters in the more charismatic movements, they're, you know, they're, they're good at like saying, yeah, oh, amen, amen, they clap for things, all the things, right? I want to give you permission. It's okay to like, amen means so be it, Lord. I agree with you. I want to hear that. I believe that. This is coming out of my heart too. So before I continue, just you have permission. It doesn't distract me. It doesn't bother me. In fact, it encourages me that maybe I'm actually saying something that's getting through, right? It's, it's, it's tough work up here sometimes, right? Okay, <clears throat> all that to say. It's okay to add a little charismatic into our... I'm going to get in trouble if I keep going. Amen, <laughs> Thank you. When we meet together as God's people, we may not look very impressive, but we have a message to proclaim that can raise people from the dead. Thank you. And give them a living hope and a heavenly inheritance. We have a message that can ransom sinners from futile ways and purify their souls. Have we seen in the Bow Valley over the last couple of weekends people who are, who are chasing after identities in many ways that, that need to be, to be ransomed from some, some futile pursuits? We have a message that can stop people from stumbling and ensure that they will never be put to shame. We have a message that can rescue people from darkness and bring them into God's marvelous light. Thank you. Let me, let me say that one again. That, that's a big deal. These things are big deals, right? We have a message that, can, that does rescue people, has rescued us as well from darkness and brought us into God's marvelous light. There's some urgency in that language, isn't there? We've got a message and we, we can't hold it in. We can't keep it bottled up. We can't just, like, keep it to ourselves. So we need to keep coming to Jesus. We need to keep gathering together. We need to keep believing in him. She continues and says, we need to let him establish the foundation and course of our lives together as God's people because we belong to each other and we need each other. We need to live our lives for him. We need to let him set and mold the course and direction that our lives take. We need to follow the path that he took, even if it leads to unjust suffering and reproach from the world. We need to proclaim God's glory in the world just as he did. And here's the thing. There are people in our families, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our classrooms who have no idea that Jesus is the living stone that can give them hope and build them into his house. They have no idea or they have, they have heard it spoken and displayed wrongly. 
They have no idea that Jesus is the cornerstone that can give them a secure foundation and a true identity and a purpose in the world. And if they reject him, they will stumble and fall on the last day. And so we must tell them. That's what we've been given to do as God's chosen and precious people in the world. And let me tell you, I don't do a great job of this. I need God's help. I know that there are people who have come into my path that, that I need to better describe the hope I have in Jesus as a cornerstone. I know that my life has misrepresented Jesus at times and continues to do. But this is what we're called to do is to draw people out of darkness and point them to God's light. So how do we do this? We keep on craving his word first. That was from verse 3, right before we started this morning, chapter 2, verse 3. Crave the word like, like a newborn craves spiritual milk. We've got to know what the word says. We've got to know who God is. We've got to know who we are. We've got to know that his light is actually marvelous. We need to, to crave his word so that we know the what and the why we believe what we believe. It, it's, it's sometimes for, for those of us who have grown up in and around the church, we believe something because, well, my Sunday school teacher taught it to me when I was here and it was a church, so it must be true, right? No, we, we've got to wrestle with these things, wrestle through the questions and the doubts, know what and why we believe, and Peter will get into that in the next chapter or so as well. We need to, to be together and encourage one another, to remind one another of the gospel so that we can take it out into the world with us. And then we need to pray for opportunities to tell others about Jesus. Sometimes we need to pray for second chances, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh chances to tell people about Jesus. Because if we ask, we'll get them. And sometimes, again, this is just me, maybe you can identify with this, maybe not. Sometimes I think, okay, if, if I'm asking for an opportunity to share Jesus, i got to have it all sorted out. Like when I get face-to-face -face with this person, it's going to be like a Billy Graham evangelistic campaign. I'm going to have a, a couple songs playing in the background. And then I'm going to have this perfect pointed message. And then, uh, then what's his typical song? Everyone come forward to Jesus, right? That's, that's all well and good. All, all well and good. But sometimes telling people about Jesus is saying, man, here's what I did Sunday morning. I didn't go, didn't go for a hike. I gathered with other people who are trying to look more like Jesus, and we tried to hear from his word today. Sometimes it looks like uh, meeting with another parent after school. I've got young kids. This is a thing for me right now, right? Meeting with someone else and saying, you know what? Parenting is hard. I don't think it gets easier as they get older either, right? But if I... <laughs> I've got to know that. <laughs> no, it doesn't get easier. But it's being able to say to this parent, you know what? We, we, I mean, we're trying to, to build our life and our family on, on the truths of the Bible, and, and, and so it helps because I can entrust my kids to, to Jesus. My kids are God's kids. I'm, I just have the privilege of looking after them for a few years and trying to point them. And just the, these little things, right? Like, I, I, I put my garbage in the bin instead of beside it because I care for our planet and care for the, the, the beauty of our neighborhood. Right? All these things, these are all little hints and, and pointers towards who God is and what he's done. Other opportunities, we, we've kind of talked about and, and thrown around the idea of, of hosting and running uh, Alpha here at Trinity for a while, and it hasn't happened yet, but I, I, I hope it happens soon because it's a, it's a great, you know, 7 to 12-week program that defines all these things. Who are we? What do we believe? Why do we believe it? How do we share it? 
And so that's something that's maybe you're interested in being a part of either facilitating or listening or being a part of, talk to me. I'd love to get that headed out. Uh, we as a church are also have a resource called Right Now Media. And, and in Right Now Media, there's a ton of just amazing resources that help us to learn how do we follow Jesus and how do we tell others about following Jesus. And I think if you scan that middle code on the, the barcodes on the chairs there, the, the uh, next steps code, I think in the list that comes up, there is a link to sign up and get your own free Right Now Media account. So I'll, we'll leave that with you. All in all, though, we also need to remember that I mean, it's, it's God's work. God changes hearts. It's his spirit that draws people. He's chosen to use us as his chosen, precious, treasured possession to bring his glory onto the earth. In a minute, we're going to celebrate that with communion. Uh, let, me, let me pray for us as we wrap up this text. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. I thank you that, that uh, every time we open the Bible, when we come to a text, maybe we've, we've read it a hundred times. Maybe this is the first time we've heard it. Every single time we come, you've got something for us. You, you speak to our hearts. Your word can, can challenge us and convict us and draw our hearts to you and, and point us to you and, and remind us of who we are. God, I, I pray, I, I earnestly pray for me and for us that today and this week and the coming weeks, when we think about the question, who are you, this would come to mind. That identity is found in you, Jesus the living stone, the cornerstone, that we can, we can set and build our lives on what you have called us to. And it's the only firm foundation, the only true foundation. And as you have called us and adopted us and brought us into your family, you also send us out to make your name great, to, to send your to proclaim your praises, to proclaim, proclaim your glory and, and draw other people from darkness into light. And God, again, I, I say, forgive me for when I dropped the ball on that. When you've given me opportunities to, to, to share who you are and what you've done in my life and, and just how much you've done in my life, and I just let it slide. So I pray for more opportunities. And when those opportunities come, I, I pray for me and for us that you help me get over myself and my own fears and concerns and worries and, and just speak the truth of who you are and all that you've done. Not so that I look good, but so you look so, so good, Jesus. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. I'm going to pass around the elements and then we will take communion together.
on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was gathered with his closest followers, his closest friends, his disciples. And all that, he, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember what I'm about to do for you. In the same way, after he took the cup after supper and said, this cup represents uh, the new covenant in my blood, my blood that will be shed for you. But do this as often as you drink it and remember me. And Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians that we, we, as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. It means we're, we're not just going through the motions of, of, of a routine, but rather we are declaring, as we sung before I got up here, Lord, I need you. We are declaring that, that Jesus is the living stone, the true cornerstone, and that we need him for life. And so I'll, let me pray for the bread and the cup, and then we'll eat and drink together. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for who you are and for what you've done. Thank you that your life has brought us life. Thank you that you, you came and, and, and showed us what true obedience looked like, that you showed us how to rightly relate to, to God and to one another and to creation itself. And thank you that even though you were perfectly righteous, that you were perfectly obedient, that you never once sinned, you went to the cross. And on the cross, you paid the price and you died the death that my sin deserved and our sin deserved. Thank you that on the third day, you didn't stay in the grave, but instead you were raised back to life, conquering Satan, sin, and death, and providing a way for us to be adopted back into your family. And thank you that now we as we proclaim your death and we cling to it as our only living hope that we can be called sons and daughters of the true living king. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.